Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. It was December 20th, 2011. Just about a year after Laura and I had been married, a cold, dark, and anxious night when Laura and I were driving home for Christmas. The snow was pelting against the windshield, and it was this weird sense of everything was bright and dark at the same time with the night snowfall. And all that I could see was the the direction that we were headed and the distance between me and the semi in front of us. That was all that we had. You know, this season that has just changed over for us in Minnesota towards spring is a welcome one. Um, But in many ways, the COVID-19 pandemic is a season not unlike a blizzard at the beginning of winter. And in moments like those, you have to know where you're going, the destination, the direction to which you're headed. And you have to also know why you're going, what, what calling is propelling you forward, what reasons you have for going home in a blizzard. The leaders from Redemptive Entrepreneurship at Praxis write this, say Christians of all people are equipped to face the current reality with both clear-eyed realism and unparalleled hope. The reality is that God has called us to a time like this, given us a mission and a community to serve alongside, and we still have the most important resource, which is trust in the context of love. Everything depends on how quickly and thoroughly we move to build on that resource starting today. This morning, as we pass over the midpoint of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the the first three chapters are still relevant. The past is important for what we're going to read in chapters four through six. But in this section, the master church planter himself, Paul, gets a transition from the worship of chapters one through three into the way of life, the walk, the direction of chapters four through six. And so what I want to show you about this walk, this direction that he gives for us is really easily conveyed by a couple of simple basic questions. Like, where are we going? Why would we go? Who's going? And what are we going to do to get there? That's the simple sketch of these next 16 verses in the book of Ephesians. Where are we going? Why would we go? Who's going with us? And then what are we going to do to get there? Question number one, basic question to answer is, where? Where are we walking? Look at verse one of chapter four with me. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, intense greeting, meant to convey his urgency. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the spirit, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. 
This phrase, walk, which the New International Version translates to live a life, is helpful to think about life as a whole, but it misses the calling and the direction aspect of this verse. We are to walk in a manner worthy of our call. And this is the repeated admonition throughout chapters 4 through 6. In verse 1 of chapter 4, walk in a manner worthy. In verse 17, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. In verse 2 of chapter 5, walk in love and then walk in light and then be careful how you walk not as unwise but wise this is the pattern of chapters 4 through 6 what's the calling to which we have been called where have we been directed to what have we been asked to go to to God, to glory, right? To new life, to grace, to reconciliation, all of those things for sure. But to be in Christ is first to be called to God himself, to belong to God, which was chapter one. And then of course it is also to be called into a new humanity, the new humanity that Jesus has made and has drawn to himself. This is chapters two through three with all of the redemption and reconciliation accomplished by the work of Jesus. And the result is that we have been called to a new grace-given unity. Those in Christ leave off the old life of segregation, of division, and they learn reconciliation and unity in the new family of Jesus. This is why you and I need the power that Paul has prayed for at the end of chapter 3 because the virtues of unity, like humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, let's just say those don't come easy to us, right? I mean, zeal, great. We're passionate people. We're eager and we hurry up. But do we do that for peace? Uh Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Because Paul prays in verse 14 through 21 of chapter 3 for a grander vision of us. Not a grand vision out there, but a godlier version of us in here. It means that you and me, that us, the church, are to live in unity. And this requires a power that comes by faith. And it also requires a grace that works to form us into a different kind of people such that the the virtues of unity are much more present in our body, right? Where does Paul get these virtues? Well, of course he gets them from Jesus, right? These are the things that mark the life of Jesus. This is the example that Jesus set for the church. Gentleness, a forgotten virtue for sure. I love what Pastor Emeritus to our network, Acts 29, Ray Ortland says. He says, now in his 70s, that the longer I live, the more I respect gentleness and the less I respect swagger. That's good. The more I respect gentleness and the less I respect swagger. Patience is putting up with one another in love. Not just kind of being kind and letting stuff, but it's putting up with those who are difficult for us. Forbearance, endurance, leading to a kind of love for others that is an enjoyment of others, but it's not just for our personal enjoyment, it's for their enjoyment, a kind of love that is costly to us. And then zeal for peace, that eagerness, that hurry up, right? that hunger for peace. This is the short list, perhaps, of the full fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Ephesians or in Galatians chapter 5. Where are we walking? 
We're walking to unity. Perhaps you've ever wondered why we're going to this place and what, why Emmanuel Fellowship emphasizes, emphasizes so much that we are a church that is a diverse community of disciples living for the good of the city to the glory of God. Well, it's because the blueprint in the scriptures is that diversity in unity leads to maturity. The blueprint in the scriptures of what the church is supposed to be is a diversity in unity that leads to maturity. This is God's blueprint for the church. It's where we're headed. But why would we go? Why would we go? Keep reading. This is verse four. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, and in all, and through all. I think he's trying to make a point. I think that Paul, Paul is trying to make a point about unity. Like, did you keep counting with me? One, two, three, four, seven ones, right? He's trying to say that there is one body, the church of Jesus Christ as his body, he the head. There is one spirit, which he alluded to in Ephesians 2.18, that we have access to the Father by one spirit. There is one hope, which is God's plan in Jesus to unite all things in Christ and bring restoration. There is one Lord. Yes, that's how we're to treat Jesus. Lord, King, all Christians follow him. There is one faith. All Christians have faith in a person, in Jesus, him. There is one baptism. Are you crazy, Paul? Like, what about infants and adults? What about sprinkling versus immersion? What about baptism of the Spirit? One baptism, he says. And to top it all off, one God and Father of all, over all and in all, through all. Seven reasons. Seven reasons. Paul says, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Scroll drop. Who's next? This is the why of unity. But in case you're wondering, this is a live question among churches. I can't tell you how repeatedly I was asked as we were planting Emmanuel Fellowship, why have you made diversity in unity your vision? Church planting is hard enough. It's a big enough hill to climb. Why pick the mountain of a multiracial, multicultural, economically diverse community living on mission for Jesus? Are you crazy? Yes, yes, I'm crazy. And mainly because God called me to do this, but more so because I want the church that Jesus bought with his blood and that Jesus brings about by his peace. Where are we going, right? We're going there because Jesus is going there. And I'm not fitting to follow anybody but him, right? Sorry, sir, but even if it is a human impossibility, this divine and eternal reality is something that I want. And I'm going to pray and I'm going to preach and I'm going to press that we would look like the blueprint, that we would look like God's blueprint for the church, the one that King Jesus stood for and the Apostle Paul taught for, the one that is diversity in unity as God's design for Christianity. That's why. Why are we walking? Well, the theological point Paul is making is that unity has been established. 
But verse 3 says it needs to be maintained. Family, I am eager, I'm zealous for us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Our scholarly guide, I call him snotty, Professor Snodgrass keeps saying this thing on repeat that goes something like Christology is soteriology is ecclesiology is ethics, meaning all these fancy terms like ecclesiology, the study of the church, and Christology, the study of Christ, and soteriology, the study of salvation, and ethics. You probably know what that means, but all of those combine and overlap together and cannot be separated. That the church and the life of the church, that love for God and a life lived for God are to go together. This is why so many writers in our time, like Seth Sinek, who wrote Start With Why, or um, Hayden, uh, what's it, Hayden Shaw, who wrote Generational IQ, pressed that millennials and Gen X and Z need to know why. And they do. They do. But when it comes to diversity, it is not that we have hopped on the bandwagon of post-modernity because the foundation of that, especially when it comes to, to diversity, is completely cracked and crumbling. Just look at our country. No, 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 that is not our inspiration. We have gone back not to new ideas, but to old ones, to the revelation of God himself to theological reflection and gospel innovation that says diversity and unity leads to maturity and that's the blueprint for the church. So where we're headed is clear. Why we're going is because Jesus is going there himself. But who is going with? Who is coming along? Let's keep reading. Verse seven, but grace was given to each one, to each one. Who's coming? Each one, everyone each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is confusing. I mean, let's be real. The quote of Psalm 68 verse 8 is difficult to understand. That's for sure. But imagine with me, there's two things that could potentially be going on here. Imagine with me, you're an extra on the set of Gladiator. Remember that old movie with Russell Crowe where he's this star general, but then he gets sold into slavery and then eventually sort of gets trained into a gladiator who threatens the very throne itself. That's the setting, right? Where after the conquest of war, what happens? The general or the king with all of the, the army parades through the city in a victory march, culminating in a rise up to perhaps the hill top of the city, the city center and then what does the king do well generously the king gives gifts to the people the spoils of the battle 
That is the scene in view here. Jesus is the conquering king in general who's victorious in giving gifts to the church. And the only other possibility is, which is just as good, is a parallel between Moses and Jesus. Because Moses, of course, you remember, ascended the mountain at Sinai. And Moses, if you remember, was given the law and then gave that to the people as a gift. And he also gave the the Levites as priests to God's people in order to serve them in a unique way. But Jesus, of course, is far greater than Moses. He went up not a mountain, but ascended up to the highest heavens, as Ephesians says, right? And he did not give the law, but gave the spirit as well as many other spiritual gifts. He did not commission a new priesthood, but gave the apostles and the church all as priests to our God. I like both options. But here's what we know for sure. Jesus is the he that's spoken of in this passage, who descended in his incarnation and who rose in victory and ascended into heaven. Jesus is the one who gives gifts to the church. First and foremost, eternal life, and then the Holy Spirit, and then gifts for service within the body. And similarly, as Moses gave the priests to God's people. Jesus has given special gifts to those who deal with God's word and those who lead for a particular purpose, equipping the rest of God's people to use their gifts. So here's what's going on here. All who are in Christ, the saints, all of them have been called into ministry. That's what's going on. All have been given the grace of a ministry. They've been given works prepared beforehand by God for them to do. The work of the kingdom is a grace. And this begs us to ask the question, what is my ministry? Like what gifts has God given me? What grace is he inviting me to that I might serve the church and advance the kingdom? If you look at the rest of the passages in the New Testament about spiritual gifts, like Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter 4, it's clear that there is no comprehensive set or defined set of spiritual gifts. And moreover, when you look at this list here of apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, you have not titles or neat positions within the church because they all overlap. Paul, for sure, could be said to have functioned in all of these as a prophet, as an evangelist, as an apostle, as a teacher, and as a shepherd. And even Barnabas is another good example of one who's called a prophet and called an apostle. So what's clear is not that there is sort of some elite or special group of people, but that there are some gifts, particularly those that deal with God's word and with leadership of others, that are designed to equip and empower the rest of God's people, all of God's people, to the work of ministry. All of God's people are to build up the church. This is diversity and unity leading to maturity. And it's why from the beginning of Emmanuel Fellowship, we've talked about equipping not just hosting events or doing things. An event-driven church is one that's organized around drawing people to a place with events. It offers programs and says, you've got to be here, right? But, but ministry then becomes viewed by those who are in positions or by the staff, right? Membership has this characteristic of being passive but busy with activities, being comfortable, and the staff or the official ministers help me 
Success in event-driven ministry tends to be accompanied by uh, like focus on numbers, dollars in the budget, things like buildings, but an equipping-oriented church is different. It's organized around a process. It's aimed at developing those within it, sending people out into the community, into their particular vocations, and into gifts. It emphasizes spiritual responsibility, saying that you need to be holy, right? Ministry is performed by everyone in the church. Everyone's needed. Everyone must contribute. And success, therefore, is, member, is, 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 is measured by transformation. It's measured by equipping. It's measured by influence in the community and the world. People in this kind of church are active, initiative-taking, responsible, and they view staff, pastors as those who resource and equip them to do the work of the ministry. We're all on the bus. Who? Everyone who is in Christ. Everyone who has put their faith in Jesus has been given the Holy Spirit to dwell within them and has been gifted by God to do meaningful work in his kingdom. But what are we supposed to do? What are we doing this is verse 13. Well, we are supposed to build up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What are we doing? Well, each one, is using unique gifts to come together to build the body, the corporate big C body, but especially the local little C church into maturity. Which, here's what this means. This is a very collective passage, but what's inferred here is that your individual mature, immaturity affects right, the corporate maturity. There is reason for you to grow up in Christ, for you to contribute and use your gifts. Because without you as an individual and influencing and affecting the collective, the church cannot grow up into maturity. Christianity is always trying to press you that your vision is too narrow, that you are a part of something bigger, that you are a member of a body that is far grander than you. And it paints, and for Paul to press this point, he is giving us a picture of contrast of what immaturity looks like and what maturity looks like. Do you see him working the difference between infancy on the one hand and maturity on the other? Do you see him saying the infants are tossed about by every wind and wave, whereas the mature are those held firm and steady? 
Those who are immature are given to falsehood and deceit. Those who are mature hold on to and know truth. Those who are immature are influenced by all sorts of human things, the craftiness and the self-serving schemes of those who would lead you astray. But those who are mature know that they are from Christ, that they are an honesty among them, and that they serve others with what God has given them. As a Christian, you are called to build something and not just any old thing and not some sort of new idea that you have, but you are called to build the body of the Lord Jesus. You are called, if you are in Christ, to build up the representation of Jesus in the world, which is the local church. How are you merely consuming church rather than contributing to its maturity? Listen, we need you. As your pastor, I need you to contribute with your gifts to this body. The Lord has gifted you. How are you going to use them? One of the last things that comes when you're learning to relate to others in conflict is what I like to call tone control. James, the biological, biological brother of Jesus, has a lot to say about the tongue. It's this, you know, rudder that you can't control. It's a fire that causes the forest to blaze, right? It's a poison. It's this incredible th- power that must be bridled. And who can tame it? The tongue. It makes you kind of wonder, like, man, what did James say to Jesus when they were kids and teenagers and even when they were adults to be able to speak and write this about the tongue? I mean, like, clearly he must have made a few mistakes. But, but listen, maybe you've had that moment in conflict with a friend, a coworker, or a spouse when they drop down the gauntlet, of course, and say, listen, it's not what you said It's how you said it, right? It's not what you said, it's how you said it. The second thing besides using your gifts to build up the body of Christ is that you and I must speak the truth in love. Rather, verse 15 says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, to speak the truth in love is in no way a license to beat someone over the head with an honest opinion. It is in no way the freedom to sort of offer critical feedback that is lacking all sorts of gentleness and humility. That is not the design here. That does not build up but often cuts down the community of faith. What needs to happen is speaking truth in love is that we are to truthing in love is sort of the way it's rendered. Truthing in love, meaning we are to speak in a manner with a tone that is helpful to building up. And not only is the tone helpful, but the content of the truth is helpful as well. If we are to be a community of trust and truth in love, we must Be careful of how we say things. Let me give you an example. If speaking the truth in love is merely about pointing out faults, we will not build one another up. 
Speaking the truth in love has to always in some way come back around to the stuff that was spoken in the beginning of this passage. The unity of the faith, the unity of the spirit. Truth, speaking the truth, has to do with one body, one spirit, one call. It has to do with one faith, one Lord, one baptism. It has to do with one God and Father of us all. And if our truthing in love does not come around to those things, it is usually not building up. But when we do, when we encourage one another and speak the truth to support one another and offer our gifts, the body of Christ incredibly grows up together. And that's what I'm longing. That's what I'm longing for our church. Like we need this passage. We need this passage. Like can we be real how hard these realities are? Like I don't know about you, but I feel the pressure and often the anxiety toward pushing us to homogeneity, to sameness. I feel the pressure to offer what's comfortable rather than that which is diverse. I, I don't know about you, but I experience the pride, the opposite effect of, of humility, patience, gentleness, and forbearance. I don't know about you, but in myself and in our church, I experience self-righteousness, conflict, some division, fueled by immaturity and, and pride. I also see passivity. Passivity that, that, that keeps people from entering in the game and contributing with their gifts, thinking that somebody else will take the initiative to do it. This is challenging. We need this. And we need not just the charge, the urge to pursue the unity. We need the means. And the means are clear here in the end of the passage, right? That, that we are to grow up into the head. The head of the body is Christ. From whom? Where does the body grow up? From whom the whole body joined and held together. Who's holding the body together? Who's joining it together, right? Who's, who's ultimately equipping by his spirit the local church? Jesus. Jesus is doing that for our church. Jesus is doing that for churches around our country and around the world. Jesus is the one who is resourcing, empowering, filling his church with his presence, animating and empowering it as the head does the body so that we might grow up together in love. Jesus is our hope. He, the head of the body, the Lord, not just giving us the way to follow, but the one who is our Christ, our Redeemer and our Reconciler, so that we might live diversity in unity, leading to maturity. Let's pray. Father, I confess that I am, and I know our church is given to the pressures of comfort rather than the setting aside of privilege for the sake of diversity and unity. I confess that we have pride among us and I have pride in me. I confess, Lord, that there is passivity among us and at times passivity in me, that we need the rallying of the church to the cause of growing up in the faith. And so I plead with you, Lord, for integrity among us. Jesus, would you give humility to
to us? And would you give us a grace-driven initiative that makes peace and maintains unity? Jesus, you are the Christ. You are our Lord. You are the one who is our peace. You are the reconciler. You are our king who has given us the spoils of your victory. May we live in them. May we use them for the good of the church, for the good of our city, for the glory of your name. Amen.